Welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick of Merrick Law, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hey, Evan, how are you doing? Hey, Heather, I'm doing great. Um, we got some couches. So I don't know if you remember, we pretty much got rid of all our furniture because we didn't want to move it because it was destroyed by children and things like that. And, um, yeah, we got, we got some furniture so people can sit down at our house now, which means, you know, Kim, we're closer to, uh, having you over as like the neighbor welcome to the welcoming us to the neighborhood in our house, warm housewarming party thing or something that we're going to do. Um, so that's nice. It's nice to have, um, somewhere to sit. Hmm. It's nice of you to get new furniture for your children to destroy as well. well I'm sure yeah, that like you know. new, new to our children, <laughs> not new in like the objective sense of the term. Right. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, we're also joined today by our very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James LTD. Hi, Kim. How are you doing? I have big news today, everybody. Huge news, actually. Can you see it on my face how happy I am? <laughs> okay. So I went to the orthodontist yesterday. I knew it was going to be about this. I was, I was going to guess, actually, before you said it. I was like, the braces are coming off? <laughs> they said five weeks and things are looking good, you guys. So nice. after two years of of cut up face, swelling, whatever, the worst of the worst, spitting on all my clients. I think I'm getting them off in five weeks. So this is exciting news. Now I, I shouldn't get too excited because it's a rough estimate. Like they weren't like a hundred percent, but they said it look, it's looking good. So, um, despite my dog spilling motor oil all over my house yesterday and having to throw out a rug and what? a dog bed and a, oh, no. I didn't throw out the dog, but I think he's broken. <laughs> so I got the braces news and everything. It's all roses. Hold on. Can we back up for a second? Why was there oil, like motor oil in your house in a typical over fashion? Well, my dog karate kicked my garage door in and he pulled out a full container of motor oil from my garage when I was working and I left him for 10 minutes and I heard him like, running around upstairs but that's what french bulldogs do i thought nothing of it until i went upstairs because he sounded a, a little bit too active and there was motor oil like everywhere oh, it was, it was no. a giant container and it was everywhere so my husband had to go to the fire department to get that stuff that takes the oil off of roads after car accidents <laughs> luckily you're married to a firefighter <laughs> And we cleaned everything up and my house still stinks like a mechanic shop. Not that oh. mechanic shops stink that bad. I shouldn't say that. They'll hate me for saying that maybe. Yeah, but we love mechanics. Anyways, we love, we mechanics. love mechanics. We're going to have one on the program. But anyways, that's the scoop. So I don't want to belabor this. I know we've got to bring our new guest in. <laughs> but I had to report the exciting news about my medal. It's coming out. Nice. Wow. Well, congrats. Congratulations, Kim. That's really exciting. <laughs> All right. Well, without further ado, I'm very excited to welcome today's guest, Angela Richardson. Hi, Angela. How are you? Oh, I am very well. Very, very well. Welcome to the podcast. Is this your first podcast? I think it is my first podcast. And I just want to say I too ordered a sofa 
And I hope to have it delivered sometime before December. <laughs> nice. Well, ours, see, ours, we got ours right away because what we did is we answered an ad on Facebook and we went to some um, storage container where these people are operating out of very, you know, could be sketchy, but they weren't. They were very lovely. But yeah, storage container full of uh, lightly used furniture. And um, they delivered it. It's like a, a couple. A, a, I don't know if they're married, but, uh, you know, a boy and a girl who seem to be uh, in love with each other. And they uh, they brought it over to our house later that night themselves and carried it in. And, wow. Uh, it was this sounds sketchy. This sounds all really sketchy. It sound a little... Well, the sketchiest suspicious. part... The sketchiest part was, like, they were lovely. I don't doubt that they're on the up and up. The sketchiest part was my wife kind of pressured me to pay them while we were there. So, like, I sent an e-transfer for the money, and then they're going to deliver it later. And I'm like, you know. That's, that's, that's a lot of trust. I know. And I'm like, <laughs> but I felt pressured by my wife, so I just did it, even though the whole time I'm like, no, oh, this could go south. And then, like, when they were, like, half an hour late, I, like, walked into our bedroom. It was late at night. And I'm oh, like, no. so we paid 900 bucks for the sofa. So we gave them $900. And they promised I'd deliver it later. And um, anyways, we don't have a receipt. We don't have anything. We should They're not get, here yet. We should get legal advice on how to do these types of transactions properly. Uh, uh -huh. The only thing that coach. The only thing that saved us is that um, these guys actually are interested in running and building a business, and so they are hustling. They're doing everything they can to make it a good experience. Like they're legitimately wanting to start a business. But like, beware! Don't do what I did because that is an easy way to get scammed. Anyways, Angela, I'm sure yours will be lovely and uh, you'll get it. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Angela, I'm going to introduce you to our audience a little bit. You are a chartered professional accountant and have been that since 2006. Um, you've got more than 20 years experience working with small and medium businesses in public practice and you describe yourself as being part of the divorced club <laughs> so that you have a personal interest in having researched some of the tax implications that go along with separating from a spouse so mm -hmm. you've got some personal and some professional um uh credits behind your name <laughs> i don't know if you'd call them credits but <laughs> yeah it's funny when you when you're part of the been there done that um you tend to get a lot of divorce referrals of people to, <laughs> you know, help me through this, help me through that. And uh, so, yeah, I've, I've we had, with we had a guest who referred to her first husband as her starter husband. The practice one. Yeah. It's like the pancake. <laughs> <laughs> and the first one never turns out, does it? <laughs> pancake, the first pancake. Oh, pancake. Right. Pancake, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I'm so excited to have you here because uh, I think what we're going to be talking about today is some of those tax implications that go along with divorce and separation. So, um, I mean, I don't know where we should start with that. Is there a good place to start? Is there somewhere that people should be thinking when they're looking at their property and their finances? Oh, well, I guess it's um, just, just to, to dive right into the, the basic t 
tax consequences. Um, you know, instead of arguing to death over the silverware, I, I, I guess the main piece of advice that I have is to to argue about the points that really, really, really matter and have long-term implications. So the silverware, who cares? Mm. <laughs> you know, um, stuff like the RSPs, the tax-free savings accounts, if you've got properties, things like that, you got to think of the long-term tax implications of when you finally sell then it could hurt because uh, generally in a divorce situation, if, if one asset is transferred from one spouse to another, it rolls over on um, at its original cost base. So if you have uh, stocks, for example, or one spouse has stocks worth um, $100,000, but their cost base is only $10,000, well, you've got a $90,000 capital gain, right? So that those stocks could transfer over in a divorce to your soon-to-be ex-spouse. And then when that spouse sells, then they have to pay tax on this capital gain. Mm. So that that's <laughs> that's applicable if it's any like doesn't matter if it's because I I already know you know that we can do um, and people may may understand that you can roll over an RSP for example and it, there's no immediate tax consequences. But is what you're saying applicable to any investment um, where a capital gain would apply that you can roll it over to the spouse without? triggering that um with a cost base staying the same yeah okay so if you've got say shares of a company mm -hmm. or uh, a, a private company or if you've got uh you know a house or a cabin uh, or a cottage as they say in some some circles <laughs> um then the cost base stays the same um the neat thing with RSPs, now that's a totally different ball game because of course your capital gains aren't, um, you don't have to pay tax on them within your RSPs. But if you go to withdraw your RSPs, then there are tax consequences. Right. So if you've got, if part of your settlement is to take a good chunk of the RSPs, but you wanted to turn around and, and, and cash them in and, and, spend money and building up your new life. Well, then you got to pay tax on all those RSPs that you've drawn. Well, yeah. If you did that, couldn't you like, uh, how do you, so is there a way to access your RSP um, without tax consequences or access the value of your RSP without tax consequences? Nope. <laughs> No possible way. This is a, this is a, I got a, an example yesterday of a broker uh, in the industry called me up yesterday from Saskatchewan and he has a client who went into TD Bank. I'm going to throw TD under the bus. They went into TD Bank, said he's divorcing and needed to equalize some money to his spouse. And they told them that they, that he could take it out. At, with no tax consequences, not a rollover, but he could he could take it out. And uh, you know, there's there's examples of poor tax advice out there. Um, and you know, further reasons why people need to tune into this podcast or go visit Angela if they're divorcing, uh, because because it matters how you move money over to your other spouse. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Uh huh. 
Okay. So uh, this is something that I think people get very overwhelmed with. And I think sometimes once folks who are divorcing get to this point in the divorce, they have already submitted, which feels like 1000 pieces of paper to their lawyer. And then their lawyers have gone all over it and asked them 1000 questions. And then they've prepared complicated charts and spreadsheets. And then as we go through that, we're like, well, we're just going to do notional tax deductions and blah, 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 blah. And then they like just absolutely shut down and glaze over. So <laughs> um, maybe we can like rewind a wee bit and like, let's talk about some, maybe some specific examples. So the house, for example, um, is that a taxable thing? Do we need to worry about tax when we're talking about transferring the, who's keeping the house in a divorce? Well, your house, typically if you have one house in a family unit, uh, your principal residence exemption applies. So even if you, you, you know, I could sell a house at any time. And if I live there for, you know, a, an extended period of time, and uh, I'm not doing anything strange with flipping and renovations, then any gains attributable to that house would be tax-free under the principal residence exemption. Same thing um, in the case of a divorce. So if you're signing the, the family home to over to somebody else, the principal residence would apply. Where things get tricky is when you've got the family home and then you have the lake property. Uh -huh. So your principal residence exemption can be assigned to several different properties, but only one property per year. So the trick is to figure out which property has the largest gain and assign your principal residence exemption to that property. Or just be aware that, you know, if, if there are two properties involved at some point, there could be tax implication based on the appreciation and the value of the property. Okay. And is that a form that folks fill out? Is that something that's dealt with in the agreement? How do people capture that? Uh, there is a form that you fill out on your personal tax return. And um, this is where you definitely want to involve a realtor, get that property uh, properly appraised and involve your accountant to help you figure out which years are going to be allocated to which property. And then there's a form that needs to be filled out and, okay. and, and reported. And then once people separate, do they each get their own principal residence exemption going forward? Yep. Okay, so they can take that cash, move that into each of their own homes, and from that time forward, they each get, they each can claim one of those properties as as uh, capital gains exempt. Yeah. Awesome. Um. Okay, so that's the house. What's what's next? What's the next kind of common thing? I have a question. What oh, about, yeah. What about because uh, we kind of you kind of mentioned TFSAs already. Um, so how? What are tax consequences of any dealt with dealing with um, dividing TFSAs and how does that work? And well, what, TFS are they, what are the issues there? Okay, TFSAs. Of course, you can you can withdraw them at any time, and there's no tax consequence. So I wouldn't be too, too, too concerned about those. Um, how does it, how does it affect your, 
the limits of what you're allowed annually to put in a TFSA, if at all? It doesn't. Okay. Well, that was easy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now that I threw her a softball, Heather, you can come back with more heavy hitting ones. <laughs> Um, okay, so I think then the next thing that most folks have are at least some RRSPs. So I know I appreciate you talked about that and that's you can roll that over. But typically speaking, if you're sort of analyzing like, well, should we be transferring the TFSA or the RRSP? What kind of questions are, should people be asking themselves when they're trying to decide what asset should go to who? Well, it all depends uh, on the receiving person. Uh, what do they need the money for and when do they need it? So mm -hmm. if they're thinking longer term goals of retirement planning, the RSPs can make perfect sense. If they're wanting to you know, take that gap year and just live on a cruise ship, they're probably going to need the money in the TFSAs. Right. Okay. Actually, that sounds really great. I think I could live on a cruise ship for a year. That sounds well, nice. You probably could. I don't know if they need like um, accountants on the cruise ship, but if you could do like, I don't know, juggling or dancing. I just have to make accounting interesting so I could give some of those uh, those those lectures. Yeah. You know, the, the two o'clock, three o'clock lecture where people yeah. are mainly napping. I could do that. <laughs> There's a thing called semester at sea. I know this because I have a client who's interviewing to go on it on a boat. I don't know. It's I don't think it's a cruise ship. I think it's a boat, and you just kind of like float around, teaching, and then adventuring. That sounds lovely. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah. Just do it, Angela. Just do it. Yeah. Life's too short. Well, what will I do with my new couch, though? Well, it'll be there for you when you get back from your semester of C. Yeah. <laughs> Evan knows some people with a... <laughs> they can help you liquidate that couch. For sure. <laughs> they got a storage unit or two. They were really nice people. I really like them. Um... So, okay. So back to RSPs, when we're, when I'm, you know, when we're doing this with clients, sometimes we have, I guess the confusion comes up on, we sometimes do a tax, a notional tax deduction. So we take off some of that value of an RSP when we're putting it in either person's column. Um, and then, but we don't do that with other things. So can you explain that a little bit and why we do that? We, we take some value out of that when we're doing the equalization calculation. Well, I would, I would take a look, look at you just to add an extra column into that fancy uh, spreadsheet to say what realistically are the tax consequences. Um, you know, in cases, uh, you know, what if some of the assets are corporate shares, you know, uh, and it's a qualifying private company uh, or mom and pop own the own the business, but mom is divorcing pop. And, you know, there there are shares where perhaps the lifetime capital gains exemption could come into play. So it's it's not as it's not as simple, I think, as just applying a oh, we're just gonna deduct 20% and call it a day. Mm -hmm. It's it it needs to be depending if the situations can be quite complex. But, but that's what we do, Angela. We take 20 or 25% off. 
That is literally what we do. We just do it and call it a day. Uh-huh. Well, and I think I was maybe being a little, I was trying to engineer the conversation a little yeah, bit in that direction because we do often do that, but I always have the caveat. I'm sure Evan does and most other lawyers do. This is an estimate and I'm not a tax accountant. So, you know, if you, you should go get some accounting and tax advice about this because uh, I don't have a crystal ball and I wouldn't pretend to know what the taxes are anyway. So well, I've got a, I've got a situation I'm dealing with. Um, a couple is divorcing and she wants nothing to do with the company that she had shares in. So she wants to just give her shares to, to her ex hubby and mm-hmm. uh, call it a day. And of mm-hmm. course those can roll over on a, uh, on an at cost basis. So the nominal dollar you pay for the shares when you start up a corporation, you know, now they're his shares worth a dollar. Mm. And uh, the um, the legal team involved wanted to deduct the 20% tax, but that company would qualify. There's no reason at this point anyway, that it wouldn't qualify for the lifetime capital gains exemption. So at the end of the day, when all is said and done, when he sells that company based on the value it's at now, he's not going to pay any tax. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a... There's a education group in Edmonton that supplies uh, sort of a, a learning course for CFP professionals clear across the country. And they're called the Business Career College in Edmonton. And they have a YouTube um, uh, video series that actually sort of talks about what Angelo is talking about. What is the, you'll see LCGE and people won't, business owners don't really understand what that is. And so like a little public service announcement for anybody trying to figure out what Angela is actually talking about. I think their video is phenomenal and they've got how small businesses are taxed and all that kind of stuff to really dig into. Um, So I just wanted to bring that up because sometimes people need a bit of time to absorb the information. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was going to, thanks, Kim, because I was going to ask Angela, tell us more about the lifetime capital gains exemption. Well, (laughs) I would love to, Evan. Um, Basically, when you've got a a small uh, corporation um, and there's a a number of criteria, I won't get into the the nitty gritty boring details, but essentially for most mom and pop type shops, um, you go to sell the shares of your corporation and if you've got capital gains, and of course this this amount changes every year, so I'm just going to throw out the nine hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars. If you 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 started up your company and you paid a dollar for your shares, you sell it for nine hundred and fifty grand. You don't have to pay any tax on that that capital gain. Essentially, there's a whole bunch of other criteria on there. I'm, this is very very simplified. Good. Uh, simplified is good. Rounding numbers. <laughs> So, so you don't have to pay any tax whatsoever on that, uh, up to that maximum amount, which right now is somewhere around just under a million dollars. I'm not going to say not going to have to pay any tax whatsoever. There are okay. some <laughs> alternative minimum tax uh, charges that can apply, but those are refundable. So, as I said, at the end of the day, when those other taxes are refunded, okay. you're basically running away tax-free. 
Mm. Any more than that, though, then you would be paying capital gains that's right. above that exemption. That's and, right. and, and you only get that once in your life. That's why it's called the lifetime. lifetime. That's okay. right. And it only applies to uh, that situation where you, you grow a business. And farm property. Farm property. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, this would be a good time to dig into what's the difference between marginal tax and average tax. Because I, I think a lot of people are using marginal tax um, on their divorce spreadsheets. But I don't know if people really know how taxation actually works in Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very complicated. Like, it, it, when you get down to it, it's not like, because people just look at, oh, it's, 50% if you make X. But over 300 and whatever course, it is. That's right? not true, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So Angela, take it away. Mm-hmm. How does tax okay. work in Canada? <laughs> well, <laughs> so okay. marginal tax rates. Yeah. Okay. So depending on your income levels, um, you're taxed at certain... I wish I could... I don't know if I could have a... Like a chart. Uh, so if you're if you're earning less than forty nine thousand uh, dollars, your marginal tax rate is twenty five percent. Okay, the income that you earn over and above that forty nine thousand dollars to about ninety eight thousand dollars, and these I'm rounding. These aren't exact, uh, but the income earned. Above, so for for that bracket, you're looking at 30.5%. And over $98,000 to $151,000, your marginal tax rate works out to... And of course, the Alberta and the federal brackets don't perfectly align, but you're looking at approximately 36 to 38%. Okay. And if we look at over and above the $150,000, $157,000 mark, you are looking at, to do some mathing here, 29, 42%. So your highest, highest bracket, if you're um, you're earning over $315,000, you are looking at 48%. So if you're dealing with a situation where, okay, I've got some RSPs, I'm just going to deduct 25%. Well, if the person's income is normally, you know, $150,000 and they're cashing in those RSPs, your effective tax rate the consequence on that, it's not 25%. It's over 30%. And worst case scenario, it's 48%. Well, not only that, Angela, but who knows how high taxes are going to be when they, if, if, like if they hold it until they retire, which is why we use that 20, 25%, just because we're like, okay, it's your only income. We're just going to assume that. Um, well, what if the lowest tax bracket at that point is 40%? We don't know. Uh-huh. And let's let's further speculate. There's been talk for years about changing the capital gains inclusion rate from 50% to 75%. Right. So that would change things. So well. not only do you, <laughs> do, you, do you need to, to guesstimate a person's life situation, but realistically, what are those talk those tax consequences? What could they be? 
I think you've illustrated very clearly why we just go with the flat 25% and call it. I think you're right. I think it's smart to stick with the 25%. <laughs> I was just to, about to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. just, just to go back to the to um, the tax brackets, I think it's, and you already said this, but I just want to stress it because like Kim said, a lot of people don't really understand. It's not the case if you're making $350,000, like God bless you, you're doing great. But it's not the case that you're taxed 48% on all of that $350,000. You're only right. taxed that high on the above upper income level. Bracket. That's right. Your first, I can't remember what it is, Angela, maybe you can tell. Your first 49,000 is very, very, very pleasant. Right, but there, there's, a, there's a portion that's not taxed at all. Right. Yeah, the very right. first. Whatever. So federally, you're looking at about $12,000 that you can earn on a tax-free basis. In Alberta, you can earn a little bit more and not pay any tax on, yeah. on the provincial level. Right. So I want those dollars then. Well, you get you <laughs> get those dollars. Lines. You get those dollars, Heather. And then if you and then that and that amount is always is is never taxed any higher. It's the amount you earn over that amount that is taxed yeah. higher rate. And yeah. I think when we talk about it in Canada, I think it's just very easy for us to kind of um, talk, we talk about it in language that is not very precise because of what you just illustrated, Angela, it's like super complicated. It is complicated. So yeah. the way we talk about it sounds like we're saying you're taxed that percentage on the whole amount, but that's not the case. Mm -hmm. so, but you're, you're, uh, I think what you're, you're, you're talking about tax credits themselves. So these are, these are basic personal exemptions that, um, you, you can earn a certain amount of money for free and the government doesn't tax you. And, and here's 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 another if you're if you're wanting to move on to the tax credit implications of divorce, it is the yes. perfect segue. <laughs> um, let's go there. Okay, <laughs> because uh, if you've got children in divorce, um, there are some pretty lucrative tax credits to be had, uh, but it needs to be spelled out in the agreement ever so precisely. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, the eligible dependent credit, uh, you basically get your personal exemption times two. So you can earn, uh, now it's $24,000 on a tax-free basis instead yeah. of just the 12,000. Yeah. And again, those are rounded numbers. That brings up a good topic. I was going to ask you what, what's the difference between credits and deductions are because people don't know that. But then uh, I was going to segue it into eligible dependents because if there's more than one kid, sometimes that can get confusing in a divorce agreement. So I was wondering if you might be able to dip into that, Angela, about claiming, sure. that, claiming that amount. Sure. If you've got a couple and they've got one child, um, they need to decide who's going to be claiming that eligible dependent credit. And uh, this, this is why from the get-go, you need to spell this out ever so carefully because this is worth thousands and thousands over the course of raising your children. Um, generally, if parent A is paying parent B child support, Parent A isn't allowed to claim the eligible dependent. CRA won't let you. Okay. Um, if you've got a situation, though, where your agreement is written such that parent A 
pays parent B child support um, and parent B pays parent A. So they're paying each other child support. And it's not just based on the, uh, the, ch uh, the child support calculation tables. CRA actually calls this a scheme, <laughs> if you would believe it or not. They deny the eligible dependent claim because if your child support is based on the scheme that is paying child support, according to the calculations, it's not allowed. But if you write your agreement such that, all right, well, based on the current earnings, we should be paying each other this and that, uh, but I'm also going to pay an extra, you know, 20 bucks because you're always going to take the kid for a haircut, <laughs> right? So if it's, if it's based on something other than the child support calculations, you'd be able to potentially both claim the child. Not at the same time. You have to alternate year after year, year over year. But if you've got more than one child, um, maybe parent A can claim child one, parent B can claim child two. But the way that agreement is written, one sentence can screw you out of thousands of dollars. And are there lawyers who screw that up? Yeah. <laughs> I've seen yeah. it. Yeah. 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 So I guess this, the message for listeners is first of all, if you have a straight child support situation where one person has primary care of the child, both parents are unlikely to be able to claim this credit. Right. You've got to have, have in a, a shared custody situation. Yeah. You've got to have that shared custody situation where there might be child support flowing both ways in order. That's my understanding anyway, in order for there to be eligibility. And it probably doesn't hurt to run your agreement like someone past someone like Angela before you sign off on the dotted line to make sure that at least this year for the conceivable future, <laughs> unless CRA decides to change their mind about stuff that it's going to pass muster um, for claiming that amount. Because you're right, it is a really valuable um, tax deduction. No, it's a credit. It's a credit, right? It's a credit. Yes, it's a credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just, let me just uh, restate that, Angela, because I want to make sure that uh, I understand what the what that fine distinction is here of what it needs so what you're saying is to get that credit um if if it's shared parenting and it's such that both of you are paying each other child support according to the guidelines neither of you can get the credit is that right uh the recipient of the child support can get the credit but not the, the payer. payer cannot. But if it's worded such that the recipient is also going to pay the payor, then they both could. Well, not at the same time, but they both either could. Mm -hmm. So my question then is the way that um, if it's worded in such a way, so just some background here, there's a section of the child support guidelines that deals with when there's a shared parenting situation that um, there can be what's called a set-off, right? And that's kind of what Angela's saying is a person that's paying, we look at how much would parent A pay, how much would parent B pay, and then whoever's the higher income earner pays the difference to the lower income earner of what mm -hmm. that is. And it can be worded in such a way that uh, you don't talk about it as an offset necessarily 
or that it's for sure going to be an offset, you say parent A pays parent B according to the guidelines. Parent B pays parent A according to the guidelines. For convenience, they may have the option to have, use a setoff. Would that be sufficient to meet uh, according to your understanding of the no. CRA? It has to be something uh, if it's based on the guidelines alone, <laughs> if it's based on the guidelines alone, um, again, they, they, they call it a scheme. <laughs> if it's based on the guidelines, you, you got to add uh, something a little extra um, to to make it not look like it's just based on the child tax tables <laughs> or, not, or or sorry, the, the child. I, I know tables. what you mean. Yeah. The, the, um, yeah. If you round up by 20 bucks to account for one parent always for you know paying for for haircuts but if you this is such a good example of how it's, oh, it's so ugly and it's gotten so much worse over the last five years mm. yeah i had no idea so that, much that, worse. that was a thing well what what i normally tell clients or what's like written in there sometimes is like look if you're if you guys want to fight about who's getting who's getting that tax credit like I'm washing my hands of the whole thing. CRA is the one that decides that, and they're somewhat arbitrary, and you can deal with them. But it's not anything to do with the law. It's CRA's policy decisions. Yeah, and sometimes it seems like whoever's looking at your agreement, mm -hmm. you know, because I've, uh, I'll give you, uh, I had a guy, um, we we amended his, we amended his tax returns because he he technically qualified for the eligible dependent. He was more than one child, and you know the way it was structured, uh, we sent in the agreement and he got back thousands of dollars. And the very next year we go to file his taxes and say, all right, we're going to claim the eligible, eligible dependent again. And they denied him based on that agreement, the same agreement that, that they had was honored previously it allowed. It's so frustrating, this area. Mm -hmm. That's that's why if you, you want your <laughs> every possible area to be covered in your agreement to to allow for you to claim. So if it's if it spells out that it's only based on the child support tables, you're not going to get it. Mm -hmm. If you're the payor, you're not going to get if it. If you're the payer. Yeah. I, I mean, this is more to protect the lawyers, I guess, but to protect the parties as well. I typically have a clause too that says, if you're not able to claim the AED as we've spelled out, neither one of you is liable to the other because that is such a policy, a specific policy direction by CRA and, is, and it is changing all the time. And yeah, that's frustrating though for that's folks. That's a good clause they're... to have. That's mm -hmm. a very good clause to have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it helps kind of both peoples in case, you know, they don't get to do it as planned. Things change. Mm -hmm. Michael is looking at your at your application instead of Michelle, like last year, <laughs> and they take a different view. Well, and there are other tax credits that you can fight over for your kids too. I mean, what about mm -hmm. what if they qualified for the disability tax credit? Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that one. How does that one work? Okay, well, uh, this one. If it makes sense for one person to claim, you can. If not, you can split it. Mm, so okay. yeah, you know, make it 50-50 and, and, and call it a day. Um, but I would I would address it and spell it out in the agreement because mm -hmm. we all know how ugly it can get. Same with um, tuition transfers. What about if you've got an, an, a 19-year-old going to school and you've 
paid all this money <laughs> to uh, to help them go to school who gets to claim the tuition uh-huh. Uh-huh. I personally have it written into mine that nobody claims the tuition transfers. We just leave it for the kids. Mm. And they claim it eventually when and they have the income to use it. Then it's not a fight. Yeah, uh, that's good. That would be a nightmare. Yeah. Mm. Well, if a, somebody goes to a lawyer and they've got young kids and they're drafting their divorce agreement, is it common for lawyers to bring up the credits and address all of them in the divorce agreement? Or would you find that more often? And I guess this is for all of you. Would you find that more often, maybe only the eligibility or eligible dependent credit is mentioned and, and there is no mention of tuition credits or disability tax credits? Um, I mean, I typically would put my mind to it if I know the children are disabled. I don't, I mean, maybe I should add it to my, what I'm turning my mind to in the event that one of your children were eligible for the disability tax credit, what would you do? Um, yeah, yeah. Because sometimes parents don't want to, uh, they don't want to label uh-huh. the kids, right? Uh-huh. So I, I generally phrase the question. So, so how's the family? Anybody have any quirks? <laughs> you know? yeah. And, and, and that's usually how you draw out some of the, Oh, uh-huh. well, my youngest doesn't speak <laughs> and, and he's five. Dude, that, and, that usually, you know, that usually gets volunteered. I find when they're talking about parenting that comes up immediately because somebody thinks the other person can't take care of the child because of, of the uh, need to right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, well, Kim, from my perspective, um, I don't really, and like I don't get into it too much because that's kind of it's kind of beyond the scope of what a lawyer is going to do for you. Uh, like that is that is in the realm of tax planning more than it is in the realm of uh, you know dealing with the legal consequences of the divorce. So. You know, now that I know more about it, of course, I'm going to use that knowledge that I've been uh, that's been bestowed upon me today by Angela. And I, <laughs> but in general, I like my approach to these kinds of things. Anyways, you know, I'm always trying to help my clients resolve things as amicably as possible and fight about as few things as possible. And it, because it saves them, it saves them on the front end. It saves them on the legal fees right now while we're working through things. Because if I have to help them fight about how we're going to deal with the tax credit, then, um, you know, that's going to cost them also money right now dealing with it. So I tend to try and help them efficiently deal with it as efficiently as possible. And so whenever possible, I'm out of the details, as many of those details as possible. And I let them get on with whatever details they want. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it's important. As Angela said, that can, that thousands of dollars adds up over, over years. Uh-huh. Absolutely. It does. It's relevant to, for your spousal support calculations, which maybe is a nice segue to our next conversation. Um, but if you click that, I, I don't know, in my fancy, you know, uh, support software, if you indicate that and who's claiming the disability tax credit, it can have an effect on what it spits out for those payments as well. Cause of course it affects cash flow if you're getting a credit or not, um, in your overall income. But um, again, maybe we're nerding out and getting a little too specific. (laughs) Should we move on to spousal support a little bit? What do folks need to know about tax and spousal support? Well, um, spousal support, uh, it's potentially deductible for tax purposes uh, to the payer. So if I need to pay $1,000 a month, 
to, to my ex, uh, I get a $12,000 write-off on my personal taxes. On the flip side, he'd have to pay that $12,000. He'd have to, there were, I, I should say, report it on his income tax. Um, uh, but in order for that to be technically deductible for tax purposes for the payer, uh, certain criteria has to be has to be met. So it's got to be documented in your agreement uh-huh. and it's got to be ongoing and it's got to be court ordered. So if you're going to give somebody a lump sum payout of 50 grand, that's not deductible for tax purposes. Right. Angela, you made me think of a Seinfeld episode where they were talking about write-offs and nobody knew what a write-off was. I missed that episode. <laughs> I think it was George was talking about, oh yeah, it's just a write-off. You just write it off. You just, it's just a write-off. Oh, no, I did, like, I did see that. It was like, oh yeah, you just write it off and nobody knew what an actual write-off was. Um, it reduces your taxable income. Oh, it's not just free money that you get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the write-off the write-off people give you the money. <laughs> oh, I need to meet these write-off people. <laughs> that would be great. They're loaded. Yeah. So if I have to say my, for example, if my if my taxable income is a hundred thousand dollars and I have to pay that thousand dollars a month, my taxable income is then twelve thousand dollars less. Right, which right, is sorry, $88,000. Bringing down those brackets and all that yeah. conversation that we had before, which is mm-hmm. helpful for the payor. Um, One of my big takeaways so far from this conversation is that it seems that the Canada Revenue Agency has a vested interest in keeping accountants busy. Right. <laughs> that is good news for you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then you mentioned lump sum support. So typically speaking, if, if you're transferring just a, a sum of cash over them, then that's not tax deductible. Right. You don't right. get to write that off as a capital loss? No. no. So uh, I've got a guy, he, um, out of the goodness of his heart, before the, uh, the separation agreement was spelled out and signed and, and, and everything was court ordered, he just gave his ex a couple grand a month just to help pay the bills, whatever it was. Um, but oh, that's, that money's gone. Mm. He cannot claim that on his taxes because it's not court ordered. It was regular, but it wasn't court ordered. Mm-hmm. That's what you get for being a nice guy. <laughs> you yeah. don't get to claim it on your taxes. But I think that's a really good, I mean, this is a really important point to make to people because it happens all the time, right? When Before things are decided, somebody's giving money to the other spouse to keep them afloat. And I guess maybe from the lawyer's perspective, what would you guys suggest that people do given like a very fresh separation? How do you address that flow of money immediately so that way all the parties are doing the right thing? Well, uh, you want to go, Heather? Well, I was going to say sometimes before we've even done the calculations, like if you're in a court process, then I would say at least uncharacterized support, document what's happening each month and leave the door open to go back and confirm that in a court ordered as having been spousal support and then it was monthly and regular. Um, And again, I don't know, CRA changes all the time, but what I... um, 
what I've seen be successful is that um, they, the folks will sign, keep good track, keep good records. They'll sign a receipt that shows monthly payments of this document that in the document that says so-and-so acknowledges payment of these regular amounts for these periods of time. And then they submit that to CRA. Um, but again, I, it may real depend on the person whose desk it goes over, right? It's regular, it's documented. <laughs> um, but so if one spouse sent an email to the other spouse saying, I've sent you these payments, the spousal, <laughs> spousal payments, can you please confirm that you've received these spousal support payments? And then that would that hold up? Oh, that's not even, I don't even think that's required to prove that it's been received. If they're sending it by e-transfer, that, that has its own, that's like built in, you get the receipt. I think the key is it's okay to make those payments at first. Um, like I, I would, I would say don't not make the payments because when spousal support has to be paid, there's a reason for it. It's because the other person needs money to live on. Yeah. Yep. Court orders can be made, like Heather said, can be made retroactively. It can like getting that documented in an order requirement done can happen even years later, if it's done by consent, that's not a problem. And even if you have to fight about it, like if you can prove that those payments were made and it spells support, then there can be an order made later that'll satisfy that requirement. But, uh, well, theoretically, I mean, as Heather said, CRA, you know, you know. Yep. <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> we try to Enjoy. check that box. But yeah, I, like... I, I, it's a tough conversation to have with clients about spousal support. I haven't met anybody yet who's been excited about paying spousal support. Have you, Heather? No. Yeah. Generally, like nobody's pumped about it, but I have definitely had good citizen clients who know that they should pay it and are prepared to pay it and do pay it. And, um, you know, it, you're always better off if the person's entitled to it and the, the other person has the means to pay, they're always better off paying it because if you don't, then you run, you start running the risk of owing a big chunk of back payments of spousal support. Mm -hmm. and that just adds up. Mm -hmm. And if that's a lump sum, are they, are they still a deduction? That's a good question, Kim. I, I, we, we, we should call CRA right now and ask them. <laughs> call center. <laughs> well, if monthly payments were required and you've ultimately paid them, right. Then, then you're okay. It should also be noted that your spousal support payments are not deductible for tax purposes if you owe back child support. Wow, look at that little nugget. Oh. Hmm. So you got to prove that. that your child support is paid up. The best way to do that, if you've got a contentious uh, divorce situation and CRA tends to question and you've got support going this way and the other way, maintenance enforcement is, they provide a beautiful statement saying what's been paid and everything is paid up to date and CRA can't question it because mm. it all runs through maintenance support. Mm. You can ah. clearly see balance owing zero. Right. Mm. That is a nugget there. Mm -hmm. Um, we can use that to motivate our clients to pay uh, child support. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you want to get that tax credit <laughs> or deduction? So this is a deduction, right? We, yeah, we actually didn't cover that. What is a deduction versus a credit, Angela? Oh, okay, a deduction is refundable. Nope. <laughs> 
<laughs> a deduction is something that reduces your uh, your taxable income. So if you buy RSPs, for example, it's a deduction. If you um, you pay childcare, it's a deduction. If you uh, or it can be a deduction. If you uh, you're paying spousal support, it's a deduction. Um, and credits just increase your tax exempt level from from the flip side mm. if that makes sense can you give an example we could have a whole hour maybe. talk on just yeah, tax probably okay so uh recall the basic exemption about 12 grand uh -huh. uh, eligible dependent suddenly you get an extra 12 grand so you get twenty four thousand dollars so that just means money that you can earn on a you just get the 25% the of, of, of that amount basically mm -hmm. is. Yeah, there's a, a higher amount of income earned that you don't have to pay taxes on. Is that what you're saying? Uh, maybe I can rephrase this another way. Uh, your credits, you basically get um, the $24,000 if you get the basic and the eligible dependent. Uh, that's 25% uh, of that. Uh, is the credit so that essentially offsets your uh, your 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 taxes that you paid in in the lowest bracket, right? Does that does that make sense? That, so yes. I, think, I think I think what you're saying is you So if you start off and you don't apply any deductions, you don't apply any credits. You start off. You have to pay your income. Let's say is twenty four thousand dollars, twenty five thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Then before you have to pay any taxes, we, we, you apply the tax credits. Right. And that $25,000 tax credit then would, negate, would, would go against all your income and you wouldn't have to pay any tax in that case if you only mm -hmm. paid. Yeah. Right. That's right. Okay. I think I got it then. Uh, and I understand, it, at least at one point when I was told this, uh, the person who told me was credible. So I understand that one of the best or most powerful um, tax credit vehicles out there is charitable donations mm -hmm. as far as like bang for buck. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about that? Charitable donations. Yeah. Our users, our, our, our listeners out there sharing uh, to, with their money with charities through to uh, taxes. Donate. It'll make your heart smile and it'll save you lots of tax. Um, in certain in income levels, you can basically recoup 50 cents on the dollar. Now, if you can donate shares to charity, that's extra, extra special. I'm sure Kim can tell us about that. <laughs> so we're, well, there's a couple of rules that we always remember in our industry. The first, the first $200 rules, and whenever somebody brings up gifting uh, or making a charitable donation, uh, we talk about uh, life insurance as an option, and yeah, donating individual stock is something that we do all the time. Mm. I, I, like I probably think we could do a whole episode on charitable donations. Honestly, we totally it, could. Because you avoid paying the capital gains on if you donate the shares, you avoid the capital gains, and you get the donation receipt for the full fair market value of the shares. Wow, brilliant! That is brilliant. But one thing I can tell you uh, is, if you buy art at a low price and then donate it at a high price, that won't probably work out for you very well depends on the art yeah if it's like is it a art. cultural property 
If it's stolen Nazi art. Oh. <laughs> no, I just know that was a, that was like uh something that was exploited heavily in the early two thousands, the late nineties, I think where people were trying to do this, this scheme of using art and charitable donations to, uh, you know, pay $10 and, and get a hundred dollar tax credit kind of thing. Yeah. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. So you shouldn't do it. Yeah. CRA will find you out. <laughs> and I would also, yeah. again, remind you, dear listener, if you're in the middle of a divorce, you should not be donating large sums of money to anyone or divesting yourself of anything. Do your divorce first then you can do your tax planning with your assets and wealth that are left over. But um, particularly if you're trying to avoid tax or reduce corporate holdings or something in sort of some sort of, you know, um, way that might be seen as trying to divest or hide assets, right? And it's, with with asset hiding, there there are ways to find it. <laughs> you know, if your social insurance number is tied to everything, CRA has a has a good listing of, you know, all of your income. So, uh -huh. <sighs> well, we've talked about a, we've talked about at least one way you can escape that, and that's uh, one of our first episodes. I think we talked about um, crypto and uh, it being in a digital wallet and, and uh, being a way to hide assets. We, and we encouraged you at that time also, I think something along what Heather just said, which is definitely try to hide your assets. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't try and hide them because it'll come back and bite you. Well, their CRA is, is, is working on, uh, on, on finding ways to force you to report that. Because hmm. technically, if you've got a gain on your crypto, uh -huh. if it's a realized gain by the same definition of your, your shares or your foreign currencies, whatever else you happen to be trading, yeah. crypto falls under the same, the same boat. You got to report it. It's a taxable event or what do they what does CRA call it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if it's a trade, mm -hmm. then it's a taxable event. Mm -hmm. I would just point out, I, I, I think it tends to be younger people that might think this way, but um, if you think you've got a legitimate way to avoid taxes illegally, it, it, you very, it may work for a number of years, could work for 10 years, could even work for 20 years. But just look at all those people a couple of years ago who found out that their uh, tax shelter program through offshore corporations in the Isle of Man and Isle of Wight um, through a, a very reputable international accounting firm, um, you know, those Panama Papers that got leaked, all those people got caught and they had to, they got a bunch of tax penalties. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're doing something that's kind of shady, uh, yeah, you might get away with it for a while, but uh, usually CRA eventually finds out they got nothing but time on their hands and they're spending all your tax dollars trying to find more tax dollars. That's exactly what they do. And every once in a while, they'll, they'll come up with a new project to, to try to hammer on. And a while ago, it was, um, you know, house flipping. You know, the principal residence exemption was abused. So you could you could buy a house and live in it and basically live in a construction zone for eight months, sell the house at a tremendous profit because you've done a full reno on it. And oh, capital gains exemption because it was my uh, my principal residence. Uh, so it's not taxable. Right. But uh, they have targeted, um, it's actually based by, postal codes. So if you've got a postal code in a ritzy uppity neighborhood, but the income reported on your taxes over the years is not 
it it doesn't align with one what you'd expect, you know, for living in a ritzy neighborhood, um, and and not reporting all that taxable income. They they go and they do a full audit, and they've recouped millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars because of this. There's also the uh, you'll be familiar with this one, Angela, the uh, overly active trading and tax free savings accounts. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> That's day trading. That's essentially business income, and you cannot earn business income in your tax free savings account. So your oh. tax free savings account is no longer tax free, it's straight up business income. That's interesting. Huh. Well, yeah. there you go. Another nugget there. One day we're going to talk about pipeline transactions too, but not today. <laughs> not today. Doesn't have anything to do with divorce, but I'm putting it down as a topic to return to. <laughs> well, corporate reorganizations could have everything to do with divorce. Well, isn't that a good point? Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. Okay. I'm ready. I'm going to take a deep breath. Maybe. All right. Cold notes. <laughs> All right. If you've got a complex situation, especially where, um, both spouses, they, the 50-50 owners of a corporation, and they've got various assets, uh, maybe it makes sense to split off some of the assets in one corporation and or, or move them over here, or this, this way, that way, and the other way, um, just to get the assets where they need to be at the end of the day for settlement. Right, right. That's so a, yeah. settlements can be simple or they can be very, very, very complex. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, and another topic we could come back to maybe there that was mentioned briefly is day trading and and, and uh, all the consequences and, um, you know, things that come from that. Maybe you can help us with that later, Kim. Yeah, we could do that. We could do a stock trading podcast and talk about all that fun stuff. Oh, let's for sure do that. <laughs> we we got to go back to child support taxation. We didn't hit that one yet. Well, yeah, I actually wanted to like put a little bow on spousal before we go into child support. The reverse is true. The recipient of regular documented deducted spousal support is going to pay tax right. on that support as income. So right. that's important for folks to know as well um, when they're going into these discussions and negotiations. And again, you know, my fancy software is going to take that into account, but it's something that sometimes hits people by surprise if they don't realize that that's part of the equation. Um, and then they're going to get a tax bill after that first year after they're divorced and say, what the heck is going on? Mm -hmm. So just wanted to tie that little bit off. Yeah. Anything else about that from the recipient side, Angela? From the recipient side, no, just that they have to report it. Um, on the payer side, if we wanted to tie it up, uh, documentation, documentation, documentation. CRA reviews this all of the time, sometimes year after year after year on the same individual. Yeah. So always have your paperwork, mm -hmm. always have your ducks in an order. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. A common question I do get is on child support, though is is it deductible is it is it reportable and the answer is no you do not put it on your taxes in any way shape or form right and that's both sides payor right. and recipient that's so. right yeah and the, maybe we could talk just quick about the idea as to why those are treated differently by under the law regarding taxes so i mean spousal support the whole concept about spousal support is that it's a reallocation of income Right. The, the entitlement generally uh, comes from a situation where 
a person needs income or a person is entitled to share in the income that they've helped um, produce basically the earning power. And so because it's income that's getting reallocated, then it may, would make sense that pay income tax. But what about child support, Heather? Why, like, why isn't, why do you, what's the policy reason behind that? Not being taxed. Yeah, I don't know. Because it's the child's money. It's meant to be for them. So it's not, I guess, considered a windfall to the person who's receiving child support. And it's an obligation of that parent to support their child financially. So it shouldn't be deducted from their income. I, I mean, I also don't know, but I agree with your assessment. I think, I think, uh, we always talk about it being the right of the child, right? And I know it's, it can be annoying if you're the payer and, and you're paying it to your no good former spouse and he or she's just spending it on all whatever they want. They bought like a new truck or they bought like a new purse or whatever it is. And it's because you're paying child support that they're doing this. I understand all that frustration, but at the end of the day, the law doesn't really care about your frustration. And if the person that you're paying it to is wasting it on um, luxury goods instead of buying food for the family, then, you know, that's on them. That's on their conscience. You're doing the right thing by paying the child support. And, and you can, you know, you can hold your head high that you're morally doing the right thing, even if the other person is not spending it appropriately. Yeah. Most child expenses are paid with after tax dollars anyway, right? You're buying clothes, groceries, yeah. shelter. <laughs> could you yeah. imagine if you could write off diapers and stuff? <sighs> That'd be awesome. I never pay tax for the rest of my life with my five kids. Alas. Okay. What are the most common tax questions in divorce? Is it disposal child support or is, are you guys hit with any other little nuggets? Hmm. I think if, I want to rephrase that question a little bit, Kim, mm -hmm. to Angela, who is not only gives advice to people, but it's gone through her own divorce. Are there any other tax consequences that people should be aware of going into it? Because what I think, Kim, is that people have no idea about, like, it's a complicated area, as we've already thoroughly <laughs> explored. People might not know. But Angela, is there anything else that people should be watching out for or be aware of? Yeah, uh, I think we covered the basics. Uh, of course, everybody's situation is different. Um, but... Yeah, it boils down to people generally don't know. They don't know the true consequences and they don't know the ins and the outs. And you get caught up in the fighting over the, the piddly little things. And at the end of the day, don't matter. <laughs> Whereas the tax consequences, they can last a lifetime mm -hmm. or feel like a lifetime anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I would definitely talk to an accountant and talk to an accountant that is familiar with divorce situations. Just be, you know, just CPAs, we're not all created equal. Our experiences aren't all the same. Just like your, your, the doctors that you go to, their experiences aren't all going to be the same, same with lawyers. Um, so you want somebody that, that really knows what they're talking about and, and can analyze your situation. Well, somebody's listening to this and they're like, Okay. No, I, I, okay. I'm going to go see a ta an accountant now. How would they go get a hold of you, Angela, to meet with you? Well, I have a phone. <laughs> <laughs> I also have an email. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and our, our, our website probably has the, uh, has all the, the pertinent information and a little bit more about us as a firm. Um, ca is the, is the firm. And my email is Angela at rmllp.ca. Can I send your personal cell phone? Uh, have, a, have a business line, 587-805-3335. We'll post all that on the uh, in the show notes as well for anyone who's listening. We'll be able to look at the website and find that information, links to her website and everything there. If, um, if they're interested in getting in touch with someone like, well, getting in touch with Angela and getting some advice about um, some of this stuff that we've talked about today. And, oh, another point to yeah. stress, independent yeah. accounting advice. <laughs> you know, if you've got a family accountant that's been doing your, mm. doing your, your, your kind of the, your whole family unit, um, it's a conflict of interest for them to look after both of you. And if they do look after both of you, uh, there's probably going to be some sort of bias. You're going to want to get a second opinion. At the very least. Right. Because probably the accountant's not going to have a, an equal relationship with both parties. Typically, it's going to be one person dealing with the accountant. That's the person they know. <laughs> Pretty hard to overcome that bias, I would um, say. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because I was just going to ask what's the percentage of people who get their divorce agreement looked at by an accountant before they sign off on things? And, they you know, really maybe some, some people are simple and they don't need it. But, I mean, what's the harm? Well, Kim, people don't even want lawyers to look at their agreements. Like I get people all the time. I get people like, Hey, can you just, can you just notarize our separation agreement? I'm like, well, I mean, and I, at first I used to say no, but now I've kind of been like, well, okay. But you need to know that it me notarizing. It means nothing. Like you can just sign it. That means just as much as me notarizing it. Cause it doesn't change the legal of effectiveness of the agreement. So and I always tell people you should get you should get accounting advice about this, any, especially anything to do with ca- uh, taxes with this. And I don't think any of my clients. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I know one for sure gets advice regularly from his accountant, but that's one out of my hundreds of clients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you, Heather? Are your are your clients more um, inclined to uh, be getting accounting advice concurrently? Oh, yeah, I think it really depends on the situation and the complexity, right? Like some folks are already hooked up with an accountant. They have more complicated business dealings and that kind of thing. So they're already have a relationship with someone and are getting that kind of advice. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, and I, I understand it. There's some reluctance. You've already got all these people poking in your business looking at all your stuff, right? They're looking at your financial situation. They're asking you all these snoopy questions. You've already gone through the ringer of lawyers and getting to that point of an agreement. But I think my takeaway and hopefully the takeaway from this episode from speaking with Angela is that you could really be leaving a lot of dollars on the table or just not even appreciating the consequences. Not that one person's trying to take advantage of of the other one, but you just don't know what you don't know. So speaking to someone like Angela could be really, really worth that extra time in that week before, (laughs) before you sign your agreement and finalize it. Mm, Yeah. That's such a good point, Heather, because, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know and maybe everything's fine. Maybe, maybe the accountant's advice is no, everything looks good. You should be good to go. 
In fact, and if that's the case, it's going to be a short meeting and not cost you very much. Right. Than likely. But it sure beats, you know, years later trying to claim the eligible dependent and CRA questioning it and having to submit that uh, that separation agreement for proof and having it worded incorrectly. Yeah. You know, and I can glance at it and go, oh, no, you're dead in the water. <laughs> you don't qualify. You know, and it, it can be just a, a quick review sometimes. So let her glance at it before you sign it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or that tax, you know, percentage that we put in for RSPs that we're guessing about, that could be off by, even if it's off by five or 10%, that could be really significant depending on what, (laughs) what amount we're applying that percentage to. So, you know, have a conversation and then Angela or someone like her can come back to those meetings and explain why, why she thinks that sort of number is more appropriate giving the situation and and give you know some some more information to the process and the decision making and all is not lost if you've already done the agreement and now you're trying to deal with this you can always amend the agreement yes it's a little bit of a pain it's better to get it done beforehand but if you meant to do something or meant to have it a certain way and it didn't quite work out that way because of the wording of the agreement you can always get it amended Lawyer will prepare it. You both sign it just like you did before with independent legal advice. So if you go and see Angela and she's like, no, you're screwed. You got to fix this. It's not unfixable. It is possible. It may not always be easy, but it is theoretically possible at least. I don't know. In my experience, it's just easier to get it done from oh, the for sure. go. And <laughs> for sure, it's easier. There's no Call question. It a day. No, matter, no matter how good your relationship is, it's easier to get it done first. But, you know, some people, some people might be listening to this and thinking like, oh, great. And I just want them to have a little bit of hope as well. <laughs> well, anything uh, that we didn't talk about, Angela, that you you really wanted to hit on? I don't think so. I think those are those are the the big juicy ones. Yeah, it, will. I, I it covers mean, the bulk of it. Anything else is pre-situation specific, and we don't want to. It was great. You just down provided some it. like general tax education that I think is is so useful for everyone, whether they're going through a divorce or not. Like so many people just don't understand how taxes work in Canada, and uh, you know, you've really helped set a lot of that straight. Kim, is there anything that on your mind that you yeah, want to cover? Angela killed it. I mean, we all know she's brilliant. So um, I think this was just, you know, a great episode. People can get familiar with what accountants do in divorce. Because uh, Angela, you're our first. Uh, we've had accountants, but they've been talking about ba- business valuations. You're our first accountant on this podcast, and there's, I mean, the tax world is is just infinite. So I, I just think this is a great introduction, and we'll have to have you back for other other topics in the future. I would love to come back. Good. <laughs> Yeah, I've marked all the rabbit holes that we can come back to. So, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being part of the podcast and coming on today. We're so grateful that you shared some of your uh, expert knowledge with us and our listeners. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. 
Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFE. Darkness of the dales dissipates, declines because of he who turned water into wine.